This is the Witnesses of History podcast, presented by Jeff Longley. Hello and welcome to the penultimate edition of Witnesses of History and we take a look at a number of stories relating to the fall of cities starting on the 1st of May 1945 and a German citizen's report on the fall of Berlin. By the 25th of April the Russians had encircled Berlin and joined up with the Americans on the Elbe. Having ordered the German 12th Army to relieve Berlin, Hitler committed suicide on the 30th of April. This is Klaus Führmann's report. Panic had reached peak in the city. Hordes of soldiers stationed in Berlin deserted and were shot on the spot or hanged on the nearest tree. A few, clad only in underclothes, were dangling on a tree quite near our house. On their chests they had placards reading... We betrayed the Führer. The werewolf pasted leaflets on the houses. Dirty cowards and defeatists. We've got them all on our lists. The SS went into underground stations, picked out among the sheltering crowds a few men whose faces they didn't like, and shot them then and there. The scourge of our district was a small one-legged Hauptschwerfuhrer of the SS who stumped through the street on crutches, a machine pistol at the ready, followed by his men. Anyone he didn't like the look of, he instantly shot. The gang went down cellars at random and dragged all the men outside, giving them rifles and ordering them straight to the front. Anyone who hesitated was shot. The front was a few streets away. At the street corner diagonally opposite our house, Walloon Waffen SS had taken up position. Wild, desperate men who had nothing to lose and who fought to their last round of ammunition. Armed Hitler youth were lying next to men of the Vlasov White Russian Army. The continual air attacks of the last months had worn down our morale, but now, as the first shells whistled over our heads, the terrible pressure began to give way. It could not take much longer now, whether the Walloon and French Waffen-SS or the fanatic Hitler Youth with their two-centimetre anti-aircraft guns could do. The end was coming, and all we had to do was to try to survive this final stage. But that was by no means simple. Everything had run out. The only water was in the cellar of a house several streets away. To get bread, one had to join a queue of hundreds grotesquely adorned with steel helmets outside the baker's shop at 3 a.m. At 5 a.m., the Russians started and continued uninterruptedly until 9 or 10. The crowded mass outside the baker's shop pressed closely against the walls, but no one moved from his place. Often... The hours of queuing had been spent in vain. Bread was sold out before one reached the shop. Later, one could buy bread only if one brought half a bucket of water. Russian low-flying wooden biplanes machine-gunned people as they stood apathetically in their queues and took a terrible toll of the waiting crowds. In every street, dead bodies were left lying where they had fallen. At the last moment, the shopkeepers, who had been jealously hoarding their stocks, not knowing how much longer they would be allowed to, now began to sell them. 
too late. For a small packet of coffee, half a pound of sausages, thousands laid down their lives. A salvo of the heavy calibre shells tore to pieces hundreds of women who were waiting in the market hall. Dead and wounded alike were flung on wheelbarrows and carted away. The surviving women continued to wait, patient, resigned, sullen, until they'd finished their miserable shopping. The pincers began to narrow on the capital. Air raids ceased. The front lines were too loose now for aircraft to distinguish between friend and foe. Slowly but surely, the T-52 tanks moved forwards through Prenzlauer Alley, through Schonhauser Alley, through Kaiserstrasse. The artillery bombardment poured on the city from three sides in unbroken intensity. Above it, one could hear sharply close and distinct the rattling of machine guns and the whine of bullets. Now it was impossible to leave the cellar, and now the bickering and quarrelling stopped, and we were suddenly all of one accord. Almost all the men had revolvers. We squatted in the farthest corner of the cellar in order to avoid being seen by a patrolling SS, and were firmly determined to make short shrift of any Volkssturm men who might try to defend our house. Under the direction of a master mason, who had been a soldier in Russia for two years, we organised our supplies. We made a roster for parties of two or three to go out and get water and bread. We procured steel helmets. Under artillery fire, we heaped up mountains of rubble outside the cellar walls in order to safeguard against shells from tanks. The Nazis became very quiet. No one took the Wehrmacht communique seriously now, although Radio Berlin went on broadcasting it until the 24th of April. A tiny sheet of paper, the last newspaper of the Goebbels press, the Tankbär, or der Panzerbär, announced Göring's deposition and the removal of the government seat to Flensburg. We left the cellar at longer and longer intervals, and often we could not tell whether it was night or day. The Russians drew nearer. They advanced through the underground railway tunnels, armed with flamethrowers. Their advanced snipers had taken up positions quite near us, and their shots ricocheted off the houses opposite. Exhausted German soldiers would stumble in and beg for water. They were practically children. I remember one with a pale, quivering face who said, We shall do it all right. We'll make our way to the northwest yet. But his eyes belied his words, and he looked at me despairingly. What he wanted to say was, Hide me! Give me shelter! I've had enough of it! I should have liked to have helped him, but neither of us dared to speak. Each might have shot the other as a defeatist. An old man who'd lived in our house had been hit by a shell splinter a few days ago and had bled to death. His corpse lay near the entrance and had already begun to smell. We threw him on a cart and took him to a burnt-out school building where there was a notice, collection point for Weinmeisterstrasse corpses. We left him there. One of us took the opportunity of helping himself to a dead policeman's boots. The first women were fleeing from the northern parts of the city, and some of them sought shelter in our cellar, sobbing that the Russians were looting all the houses, abducting the men and raping all the women and girls. I got angry, shouted I had enough of Goebbels' silly propaganda. The time for that was past. If that was all they had to do, let them go elsewhere. Whilst the city lay under savage artillery and rifle fire, the citizens now took to looting the shops. 
the last soldiers withdrew further and further away. Somewhere in the ruins of the burning city, SS men and Hitler youth were holding out fanatically. The crowds burst into cellars and storehouses. While bullets were whistling through the air, they scrambled for a tin of fish or a pouch of tobacco. On the morning of 1st of May, our flat was hit by a 21-centimetre shell and almost entirely destroyed. On the same day, water carriers reported that they had seen Russian soldiers. They could not be located exactly. They were engaged in house-to-house -house fighting, which was moving very slowly. The artillery had been silent for some time, when at noon on the 2nd of May, rifle fire too ceased in our district. We climbed out of our cellar. From the street corner, Russian infantry were slowly coming forward, wearing steel helmets with hand grenades in their belts and boots. The SS had vanished. The Hitler youth had surrendered. Bunny rushed and threw her arms round a short, slit-eyed Siberian soldier who seemed more than a little surprised. I at once went off with two buckets to fetch water, but I didn't get beyond the first street corner. All men were stopped there, formed into a column, and marched off towards the east. A short distance beside Alexanderplatz, everything was in a state of utter turmoil and confusion. Russian nurses, armed with machine pistols, were handing out loaves of bread to the German population. I took advantage of this turmoil to disappear and got back home safely. God knows where the others went. After the first wave of combatant troops, there followed reserves and supply troops who liberated us in the true Russian manner. At our street corner I saw two Russian soldiers assaulting a crying elderly woman and then raping her in full view of the stunned crowd. I ran home as fast as I could. Bunny was all right so far. We'd barricaded the one remaining room of our flat with rubble and charred beams in such a manner that no one outside could suspect that anyone lived there. Every shop in the district was looted. As I hurried to the market, I was met by groups of people who were laden with sacks and boxes. Vast food reserves belonging to the armed forces had been stored there. The Russians had forced the doors open and let the Germans in. The cellars, which were completely blacked out, now became the scene of an incredible spectacle. The starving people flung themselves like beasts over one another, shouting, pushing and struggling to lay their hands on whatever they could. I caught hold of two buckets of sugar, a few boxes of preserves, 60 packages of tobacco and a, few, a small sack of coffee, which I quickly took back home before returning for more. The second raid was also successful. I found noodles, tins of butter and a large tin of sardines. But now things were getting out of hand. In order not to be trampled down themselves, the Russians fired at random into the crowds with machine pistols, killing several. I can't remember how I extricated myself from the screaming, shouting chaos. All I remember is that even here in this utter confusion, Russian soldiers were raping women in one of the corners. Bunny had meanwhile made me promise not to try to interfere if anything were to happen to her. There were stories in our district of men being shot trying to protect their wives. In the afternoon, two Russians entered our flat while Bunny was sitting on the bed with a child. They looked her over for some time. Evidently, they were not very impressed with her. We had not washed for a fortnight, and I'd expressly warned Bunny not to make herself tidy, for I thought the dirtier and more neglected she looked, the safer. 
but the two gentlemen didn't seem to have a very high standard as far as cleanliness was concerned, with the usual words, Frau, komm, spoken in a menacing voice. One of them went towards her. I was about to interfere, but the other shouted, Stoi, and then jammed his machine pistol in my chest. In my despair, I shouted, Run away, quick! But that was, of course, impossible. I saw her quietly lay the baby aside. Then she said, Please don't look, darling. I turned to the wall. When the first Russian had had enough, they changed places. The second was chattering in Russian all the time. At last it was over. The man patted me on the shoulder. Nixt angst, Ruski soldat gut. Now we go back to November 1576 and George Gascoigne's report on the sack of Antwerp by a Spanish army. The so-called Spanish Fury, which laid Antwerp waste, was an incident in the religious wars of the late 16th century, and Gascoigne, an English poet and novelist. I was lodged in the English house and had not gone abroad that morning by reason of weighty business which I had in hand the same day. At dinner time, the merchantmen of my country, which came out of the town and dined in my chamber, told me, that a hot skirmish was begun in the castle yard, and that the fury thereof still increased. About the midst of dinner, news came that the shot was so thick as neither ground, houses, nor people could be discerned for the smoke thereof, and before dinner were fully ended that the Spaniards were there like to win the trenches. Whereat I stepped from the table and went hastily up into a high tower of the said English house, from whence I might discover fire in four or five places of the town towards the castle yard, and thereby I was well assured that the Spaniards indeed were entered within the trenches. So that I came down and took my cloak and sword to see the certainty thereof, and as I passed towards the bourse I met many, but I overtook none. And those which I met were no townsmen, but soldiers, neither walked they as men which use traffic, but ran as men which are in fear." Whereat, being somewhat grieved, and seeing the townsmen stand every man before his door with such weapons as they had, I demanded of one of them what it meant, who answered me in these words, Hélas, monsieur, il n'y a point d'ordre, et voilà la ruine de cette ville. Alas, sir, there's no order, and behold, the ruin of this town. Have courage, my friend, quoth I, and so went onwards yet towards the bourse, meeting all the way more and more, which mended their pace. At last, a Walloon trumpeter on horseback, who seemed to be but a boy of years, drew his sword and laid about him, crying, Oh, where are you flying to, rascals? Make head for the honour of our country. Wherewith fifty or threescore of them turned head and went back towards the bourse. The witch encouraged me, to proceed. But alas, the comfort endured but a while, for by that time I came up on the farther side of the bourse, I might see a great troop coming in greater haste, with their heads as close together as a school of young fry or a flock of sheep, who met me on the further side of the bourse, towards the marketplace, and having their leaders foremost, for I knew them by their javelins, boar spears, and staves, bear me over backwards, and ran over my belly and my face long time before I could recover on foot. At last, when I was up, I looked on every side, and seeing them run so fast, begun thus to bethink me, What in God's name do I hear? 
which have no interest in this action, since they who came to defend this town are content to leave it at large and shift for themselves. And whilst I stood thus musing, another flock of flyers came so fast that they bare me on my nose and ran as many over my back as erst had marched over my stomach. In fine, I got up like a tall fellow and went with them for company, but their haste was such as I could never overtake them until I came on a broad cross street which lies between the English house and the said bourse. There I overtook some of them grovelling on the ground and groaning for the last gasp, and some others, which turned backwards to avoid the tickling of the Spanish muskets, who had gotten the ends of the said broad across the street and flanked it both ways. And there I stayed a while, till, hearing the shot increase and fearing to be surprised with such an, as might follow its in tale of us, I gave adventure to pass through the said cross street, and, without vaunt be it spoken, passed through five hundred shots before I could recover the English house. At my coming thither I found many of the merchants standing before the gate, whom I could not discomfort nor dismay, but said that the Spaniards had once entered the town, and that I hoped they were gone back again. Nevertheless I went to the governor, and privily persuaded him to draw in the company and to shut up the gates." the which he consented unto, and desired me, because I was somewhat better acquainted with such matters than the merchants, to take charge of the key. I took it willingly, but before I could well shut and bar the gate, the Spaniards were now come forwards into the same street, and passing by the door, called to come in, bestowing five or six musket shot at the gate, where I answered them, whereof one of them came very near my nose, and piercing through the gate, strake one of the merchants on the head, without any great or dangerous hurt. But the heat of the pursuit was yet such that they could not attend the spoil, but passed on in the chase to the new town, where they slew infinite numbers of people, and by three of the clock or before returned victors, having slain or put to flight all their enemies. And now, to keep promise and to speak without partiality, I must needs confess that it was the greatest victory and the roundiest executed that have been seen, read or heard of in our age, and that it was a thing miraculous to consider how trenches of such a height should be entered, passed over and won both by footmen and horsemen. For immediately after that the footmen were gotten in, the horsemen found means to follow, and being many of them harkbussiers on horseback, did pass by their own footmen in the streets, and much hastened both the flight of the Walloons, and made the way opener unto speedy executioners. But whosoever will therein most extol the Spaniards for their valour and order, must therewith confess that it was the very ordinance of God for a just plague and scourge upon the town, for otherwise it passeth all men's capacity to conceive how it should be possible. And yet the disorder and lack of foresight in the Walloons did great help to augment the Spanish glory and boast. To conclude, the Count d'Oberstein was drowned in the new town, the Marquis de Havre and Champagny escaped out of the said new town and recovered the Prince of Orange's ships. Only the young Count of Edmund was taken, fighting by St. Michael's, Monsieur de Capra and Monsieur de Gauguin were also taken, but I heard of none that fought stoutly, saving only the said Count of Egmont, whom the Colonel Verdugo, a Spaniard of an honourable compassion and good mind, did save, with great danger to himself, in defending the Count. In this conflict there were slain six hundred Spaniards, or thereabouts, 
And on the Thursday next, following the 8th of November, a view of the dead bodies in the town being taken, it was esteemed 17,000 men, women and children. A pitiful massacre, though God gave victory to the Spaniards. And surely, as their valiance was to be much commended, so yet I can much discommend their barbarous cruelty in many respects. For methinks that as when God gives abundance of wealth, the owner ought yet to have regard on whom he bestow it. Even so, when God gives a great and miraculous victory, the conquerors ought to have great regard unto their execution. And those some which favour the Spanish faction will allege sundry reasons to the contrary, yet when the blood is cold and the fury over, methinks that a true Christian heart should stand content with victory and refrain to provoke God's wrath by shedding of innocent blood. These things I rehearse the rather, because they neither spared age nor sex, time nor place, person nor country, profession nor religion, young nor old, rich nor poor, strong nor feeble, but, without any mercy, did tyranniously triumph where there was neither man nor means to resist them. For age and sex, young and old, they slew great numbers of young children, but many more women than fourscore years of age. For time and place, their fury was as great ten days after the victory as at the time of their entry, and as great respect they had to the church and the churchyard for all their hypocritical boasting of the Catholic religion as the busher had to his shambles or slaughterhouse. For person and country, they spared neither friend nor foe, Portuguese nor Turk. For profession and religion, the Jesuits must give their ready coin, and all other religious houses, both coin and plate, with all short ends that were good and portable. The rich were spoiled because he had, and the poor were hanged because they didn't. Neither strength could prevail to make resistance, nor weakness more pity move pity, for to refrain their horrible cruelty. And this was not only done when this chase was hot, but as I erst said, when the blood was cold and they now victors without resistance. I refrained to rehearse the heaps of dead carcasses which lay at every trench where they entered, the thickness whereof did in many places exceed the height of a man. I forbear also to recount the huge numbers drowned in the new town, where a man might behold as many sundry shapes and forms of man's motion at time of death as ever Michelangelo did portray in his tables of doomsday. I list not to reckon the infinite number of poor Almains or Germans who had burned in their armour, some the entrails scorched out and all the rest of the body free, some their head and shoulders burnt off so that you might look down into the bulk and breast and there take an anatomy of the secrets of nature. Some standing upon their waist being burnt off by the thighs. And some no more that had, had the very top of their brain taken off with fire, whilst the rest of the body did abide unspeakable torments. I, see not I set not down the ugly and filthy polluting of every street with the gore and carcasses of horses. Neither do I complain that the one lacked burial and the other flaying, until the air corrupted with their carrion infected all that yet remained alive in the town. And why should I describe the particularity of every such annoyance as commonly happens both in camps and castles where martial feats are managed? But I may not pass over with silence the willful burning and destroying of the stately townhouse and all the monuments and records of the city 
neither can I refrain to tell their shameful rapes and outrageous forces presented unto sundry honest dames and virgins. It is also a ruthful remembrance that a poor English merchant who was but a servant having once redeemed his master's goods for three hundred crowns was yet hanged until he were half dead because he had not two hundred more to give them. And the hawter, being cut down, and he come to himself again, besought them on knees with bitter tears to give him leave to seek and try his credit and friends in the town for the rest of their unreasonable demand. At his return, because he sped not, as indeed no money was then to be had, they hung him up again outright, and afterwards, of exceeding course courtesy, procured the friar's minor to bury him. To conclude... Of the 17,000 carcasses which were viewed on the Thursday, I think in conscience 5,000 or few less were massacred after their victory, because they had not ready money wherewith to ransom their goods at such prices as they pleased to set on them. At least all the world will bear me witness that ten days after whosoever but was but pointed at and named to be a Walloon was immediately massacred without further audience or trial. For mine own part, it is well known that I did often escape very narrowly, because I was taken for a Walloon, and on Sunday the 11th of this instant, which was the day before I got out of the town, I saw three poor souls murdered in my presence, because they were pointed to be Walloons. And it was well proved immediately after that one of them was a poor artificer, who had dwelt in the town eight years before, and never managed arms, but truly followed his occupation. Furthermore, the seed of these and other barbarous facts brought forth this crop and fruit, that within three days Antwerp, which was one of the richest towns in Europe, had now no money nor treasure to be found therein, but only in the hands of murderers and strumpets. For every Don Diego must walk, jetting up and down the streets with his harlot by him, in her chain and bracelets of gold, and the notable boss which was wont to be a safe assembly for merchants and men of all honest trades, had now none other merchandise therein, but as many dicing tables as might be placed around it, all the day long. Our penultimate story is our third European city falling. This is 1812, September the 14th. Baron Claude Francois de Meneval reports, retreating before Napoleon, the Russians under Kutuzov adopted a scorched-earth policy, abandoning Moscow, which Napoleon entered unopposed. The premature onset of winter made his subsequent withdrawal from Moscow disastrous. A curious and impressive sight was this sudden appearance of this great city, Asiatic rather than European, spreading out at the end of a desert and naked plain, topped with its 1,200 spires and sky-blue cupolas strewn with golden stars and linked one to the other with gilded chains. This conquest had been dearly paid for, but Napoleon at that time lulled himself in the hope that he would be able to dictate peace there. The king of Naples, who ended it first, sent word to the emperor that the city appeared to be deserted and that no civil or military functionary, nor nobleman, nor priest, had presented himself. The Russian army had taken away the majority of the inhabitants of Moscow in its train. Some Russian and foreign dealers who had managed to escape this order came to see the emperor and implored him to protect them against the pillaging with which they thought themselves menaced. 
there had remained in the city only a few thousand people belonging to the lowest classes of society who had nothing to lose by awaiting the course of events. Napoleon passed this night of September the 14th in the Dorogomilo Forberg and only entered Moscow in the morrow. This entry was not accompanied by that tumult which marked the taking possession of a great city. No noise disturbed the solitude of the city streets, save only the rumbling of the cannon and of the artillery casson. Moscow seemed asleep, in deep sleep, like one of those enchanted cities of which we read in Arabian tales. The streets through which we pass were lined with houses of fine appearance for the most part, with closed windows and doors. Palaces with colonnades, churches and beautiful buildings glittering with the luxury of Europe and Asia raised themselves side by side with very modest habitations. All bespoke the ease and wealth of a great city enriched by trade and inhabited by a wealthy and numerous aristocracy. Some of the principal houses which we were able to enter were well appointed and well furnished, many even magnificently so and their inhabitants didn't appear to have abandoned them forever. The emperor proceeded directly to the Kremlin, a large citadel placed in the centre of the town on the top of the hill, surrounded with an embattled wall and flanked at intervals with towers armed with cannon. The Kremlin is a second city. It contains the imperial palace, the arsenal, the senate palace, the archives, the principal public establishments, a large number of churches, temples filled with historical curiosities, objects serving for the coronation of the sovereigns, and lastly trophies and flags taken from the Turks. It is in one of the principal temples that are the tombs of the Tsars. In this imposing fane reigns a magnificence which is half barbaric, and of a primitive character. The walls are covered with thick plates of gold and silver, on which are figured in relief the principal incidents of the sacred history. Enormous silver lamps of Byzantine shape hang from the arches of the building. Large, many-branched chandeliers of the same metal stand on pedestals on the floor. There is also to be seen in the sanctuary a portrait of the Holy Virgin attributed to St. Luke. The frame of this picture is enriched with pearls and precious stones. A great bell tower, known as the Ivan Tower, was surmounted by a gigantic cross in the centre of which was enchased a cross of pure gold containing a fragment of the true cross. This cross and a number of curious objects which could be removed were to be sent to Paris from the Kremlin. Hardly had the emperor entered the Kremlin than fire broke out in the Kitagorod, or Chinese city, an immense bazaar surrounded by porticos in which were heaped up in large shops or cellars, the entrances to which were placed in the middle of the streets, precious goods of every kind such as shawls, furs, Indian and Chinese tissues. Fruitless efforts were made to extinguish the flames and the burning of the bazaar became the signal for a general conflagration in the city. This conflagration, spreading rapidly, devoured three-quarters of Moscow in three days. Each moment one saw smoke followed by flames breaking out of houses which had remained intact, and in the end the fire broke out in every house in the city. The town was one mighty furnace from which sheaves of fire burst heavenward, lighting up the horizon with the glaring flames and spreading a burning heat. These masses of flame, mingling together, were rapidly caught up, by a strong wind which spread them in every direction. They were accompanied 
by a succession of whistling noises and explosions caused by the falling walls and the explosion of inflammable materials which were stored in the shops and houses. To these roaring noises, to these sinister outbreaks, added themselves the cries and yells of the wretched people who were caught by the flames in the houses which they had entered to pillage, and which many escaped only to perish in the streets which formed a blazing labyrinth from which all escape was impossible. Motionless. And in the silence of stupor we looked on at this horrible and magnificent spectacle with a feeling of our absolute helplessness to render any assistance. And our final report in this episode comes from the 17th of April 1906 and we move far west to San Francisco and Jack London's report following the earthquake and subsequent fire which made 225,000 homeless. San Francisco is gone. Nothing remains of it but memories and a fringe of dwelling houses on the outskirts. Its industrial section is wiped out. Its social and residential section is wiped out. The factories and warehouses, the great stores and newspaper buildings, the hotels and the palaces of the nabobs are all gone. Remains only the fringe of dwelling houses on the outskirts of what was once San Francisco. Within an hour after the earthquake shock, the smoke of San Francisco's burning was the lurid tower visible a hundred miles away, and for three days and nights this lurid tower swayed in the sky, reddening the sun, darkening the sky, and filling the land with smoke. On Wednesday morning, at a quarter past five, came the earthquake. A minute later the flames were leaping upward, in a dozen different quarters south of Market Street, in the working-class ghetto, and in the factories, fires started. There was no opposing the flames. There was no organisation, no communication. All the cunning adjustments of a 20th century city had been smashed by the earthquake. The streets were humped into ridges and depressions and piled with debris of fallen walls. The steel rails were twisted into perpendicular and horizontal angles. The telephone and telegraph systems were disrupted and the great water mains had burst. All the shrewd contrivances and safeguards of man had been thrown out of gear by 30 seconds twitching of the earth crust. By Wednesday afternoon, inside of twelve hours, half the heart of the city was gone. At that time, I watched this vast conflagration from out on the bay. It was dead calm, not a flicker of wind stirred. Yet from every side, wind was pouring in upon the city. East, west, north and south, strong winds were blowing upon the doomed city. The heated air, rising, made an enormous suck. Thus did the fire of itself build its own colossal chimney through the atmosphere, Day and night this dead calm continued, and yet near to the flames the wind was often half a gale, so mighty was the suck. The edict which prevented chaos was the following proclamation by Mayor Schmitz. The federal troops, the members of the regular police force, and all special police officers have been authorised to kill any and all persons found engaged in looting or in the commission of any other crime. I have directed all the gas and electric lighting companies not to turn on gas or electricity until I order them to do so. You may therefore expect the city to remain in darkness for an indefinite time. I request all citizens to remain at home from darkness until daylight of every night until order is restored. I warn all citizens of the danger of fire 
from damaged or destroyed chimneys, broken or leaking gas pipes, or fixtures, or any like cause. Wednesday night saw the destruction of the very heart of the city. Dynamite was lavishly used, and many of San Francisco's proudest structures were crumbled by man himself into ruins. But there was no withstanding the onrush of the flames. Time and again, successful stands were made by firefighters, and every time the flames flanked round on either side or came up from the rear and turned to defeat the hard-won victory. At nine o'clock Wednesday evening, I walked down through miles and miles of magnificent buildings and towering skyscrapers. Here was no fire. All was in perfect order. The police patrolled the streets. Every building had its watchman at the door. And yet it was doomed. All of it. There was no water. The dynamite was giving out. And at right angles, two different conflagrations were sweeping down upon it. At one o'clock in the morning, I walked down through the same section... Everything still stood intact. There was no fire, and yet there was a change. A rain of ashes was falling. The watchmen at the doors were gone. The police had been withdrawn. There were no firemen, no fire engines, no men fighting with dynamite. The district had been absolutely abandoned. I stood at the corner of Kearney and Market, in the very innermost heart of San Francisco. Kearney Street was deserted. Half a dozen blocks away, it was burning on both sides. The street was a wall of flame. And against this wall of flame, silhouetted sharply, were two United States cavalrymen sitting their horses, calmly watching. That was all. Not another person in sight. In the intact heart of the city, two troopers sat their horses and watched. Surrender was complete. There was no water. The sewers had long since been pumped dry. There was no dynamite. Another fire had broken out further uptown, and now from three sides conflagrations were sweeping down. The fourth side had been burned earlier in the day. In that direction stood the tottering walls of the examiner building, the burned-out core building, the smouldering ruins of the Grand Hotel, and the gutted, devastated, dynamited Palace Hotel. The following will illustrate the sweep of the flames and the inability of men to calculate their spread. At eight o'clock Wednesday evening, I passed through Union Square. It was packed with refugees. Thousands of them had gone to bed on the grass. Government tents had been set up, supper was being cooked, and the refugees were lining up for free meals. At half past one in the morning, three sides of Union Square were in flames. The fourth side, where stood the great St. Francis Hotel, was still holding out. An hour later, ignited from top and sides, the St. Francis was flaming heavenward. Union Square heaped high with mountains of trunks, was deserted. Troops, refugees and all had retreated. It was at Union Square that I saw a man offering a thousand dollars for a team of horses. He was in charge of a truck piled high with trunks from some hotel. It had been hauled here into what was considered safety and the horses had been taken out. The flames were on three sides of the square and there were no horses. Also at this time, standing beside the truck, I urged a man to seek safety in flight. He was all but hemmed in by several conflagrations. He was an old man. He was on crutches. Said he, today is my birthday. Last night I was worth $30,000. I bought five bottles of wine, some delicate fish and other things for my birthday dinner. I've had no dinner and all I own now are these crutches. I convinced him of his danger and started him limping on his way. 
An hour later, from a distance, I saw the truckload of trunks burning merrily in the middle of the street. On Thursday morning, at a quarter past five, just 24 hours after the earthquake, I sat on the steps of a small residence of Knob Hill. With me sat Japanese, Italians, Chinese, Negroes, a bit of a cosmopolitan flotsam of the wreck of the city. All about were the palaces of the Nabob pioneers of 49. To the east and south, at right angles, were advancing two mighty walls of flame. I went inside with the owner of the house on the steps of which I sat. He was cool and cheerful, hospitable. Yesterday morning, he said, I was worth $600,000. This morning this house is all I have left. It'll go in 15 minutes. He pointed to a large cabinet. That's my wife's collection of china. This rug upon which we stand is a present. It costs $1,500. Try that piano. Listen to its tone. There are few like it. There are no horses. The flames will be here in 15 minutes. Outside the old Mark Hopkins residence, a palace was just catching fire. The troops were falling back and driving refugees before them. From every side came the roaring of flames, the crashing of walls and the detonations of dynamite. I passed out of the house. Day was trying to dawn through the smoke pole. A sickly light was creeping over the face of things. Once only the sun broke through the smoke pole, blood red and showing quarter its usual size. The smoke pool itself, viewed from beneath, was a rose colour that pulsed and fluttered with lavender shades, and it turned to mauve and yellow and dun. There was no sun, and so dawned the second day on stricken San Francisco. listening to the witnesses of history podcast with jeff lumley the music was by eric matthias www.soundimage.org <laughs>